Welcome to Honest Retail, the weekly podcast that dishes out the truth about the latest news, trends, and blunders from the CPG, consumer, and retail industries. Now, here are your hosts, Cameron McCarthy, Taylor Foxman, and Carlton Fowler. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Honest Retail. Uh, excited to have Taylor back in the fold this week. Taylor, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you guys? Good. CJ, how are you doing? Doing great. Rested. Hey, how was everybody's 4th of July weekend? Nice. It was nice. And people, I like, I didn't realize, like, all over people just like do their own fireworks. So we're like driving home from dinner last night and just like looking to my right and my left. It's just like everyone's doing their own fireworks in their backyard. I'm like, this can't be safe. Yeah, we were in Delaware and apparently it's like fireworks are illegal except for the third and the fourth and then they're legal and then they go back to being illegal on the fifth, which I thought was like kind of crazy. But yeah, it's like what? Like post 30 years old, I find like fireworks very annoying. And it's like, why is there like a ruckus outside my window at 10 o'clock at night? So it's uh, I'm definitely like the party pooper in the area. <laughs> CJ, what'd you do this weekend for the holiday? Um, well, it was my, my mom's birthday is on July 1st. So we went down to like the Monterey Carmel area for a couple of days. And then I was back in San Francisco for the fourth. CJ, nice. your mom and my mom, your birth, my birthday and your mom's birthday are the same. I'm the first two. All right. Happy birthday. There we go. Oh, thank you. I used to remember, uh, I used to go to Carmel like every weekend or not every weekend, but like every weekend in the summer, uh, like when I was like growing up. And so I remember there's like a really good caramel apple joint like down there, but I definitely don't remember the name of it. <laughs> where, where did you, where did you live that was close enough to Carmel to go every weekend? Um, so we used to like get a house down there. Um, but I, I lived in the, the Bay area growing up. So we used to get a house in the Monterey Carmel, uh, Carmel area for like summer and the weekends okay. and stuff. We went on the 17 mile drive. Didn't, didn't golf, but, um, I, I forget sometimes just how pretty it is down there. It's yeah. a very, very nice area for sure. And you have the aquarium and everything too. So it's awesome. Uh, any, any new products you tried over the last week, CJ? Um, I, you know, we, we don't have our barbecue set up, but like mm-hmm. I was insisting that we eat hot dogs. So <laughs> I found like, uh, you know, I, I guess this is technically a new product. The name tickled me. It was called the absolute verst. Um, so all they sold was like knock worst and brought worst and stuff like that, but it was called the absolute worst. Nice. And, uh, so ordered a bunch of, and, and they came on King's Hawaiian rolls, like cut, like, like like a hot dog bun, which was was a new experience for me, and I was pretty pretty pleased with that. I think I'll probably revisit that restaurant even during non non hot dog holidays. <laughs> Kings Hawaiian bread is like uh, it's like a brand I probably haven't had in like ten or fifteen years. I feel like, but it was like always in my cupboard as a kid, yeah, and it was. Heard. It was the bread that they used as communion going to church as a kid. So like, I always remember like getting really excited for that part of church and then sneaking to the back and grabbing some extra rolls whenever I was on my way out. I don't know if that's sacrilegious or not, but uh, it was very, very good choice by the church for sure. Taylor, Taylor, how about you? What'd you try this weekend? Well, I'm just going to stay with Kings Hawaiian because they have pretzel sliders now and I loved everything pretzel. Um, even at our wedding a few weeks ago, there was a person walking around with just like pretzels. I was like, it was like me getting like, come back for another round, another round of alcohol. Instead, it was pretzels. I love pretzels. I don't know if these are new or not, but I did see them recently and um, I'm excited to try them. So I haven't tried them yet, but I'm staying on the King's Hawaiian kick because I 
to love King's Hawaiian. I think Guy Fieri now like reps King Hawaiian. I see it like his, his face next to a lot of their advertisements. So I'll know, maybe, maybe we need someone from King's Hawaiian on the show. Um, but they just, they have a sweet pretzel slider. So that's on my radar. Nice. Yeah, Guy Fieri's like character arc has like really went uh, kind of been crazy like over the last few years because like I know po- post COVID or during COVID he like he was really one of the catalysts that helped a lot of restaurants yeah. get through. So it yep. seems like he's went from like a lot of people rolling their eyes to him to like kind of the good guy in the industry. So that's been good to see. He's he I think behind like Jose Andres I think he's one of the top yeah. well-known chefs that donated both time and money. I think more than most. Yeah, I heard awesome. the same. So yeah, so for me, um, it's a brand called Field and Farmer. Um, they do a line of um, different like dips and, and sauces and dressings. Um, I tried their ranch and their lemon garlic basil. Um, I think they're both like plant-based. So like obviously like plant-based ranch uh, can sound a little gross sometimes, but it was really good. Uh, and I'm always down for like new dip companies. Like I'm a uh, like if it's the weekend, I'm trying, like I, I'm making dips or I'm eating dips, like salsa, guacamole, spinach and artichoke dip, doesn't matter. Like I'm, I'm a dip enthusiast. So anytime I can find like a slightly healthier version, it's not going to make me feel terribly gross, uh, gorging on dips all the time. I'm, I'm excited about it. So uh, I'm excited to try uh, their dips as well. But um, quick shout out to uh, a new brand that just recently joined We Suck too. So definitely rooting for them on our end. Um, all right, cool. So let's jump right in. Um, we're kind of doing a slightly shorter show today. Um, I wanted to talk quickly about a retailer that we definitely haven't talked about in the past, um, which is Bed Bath & Beyond. Um, Bed Bath & Beyond during the pandemic um, was really doing very uh, well. I think they saw their market cap kind of go up to $6.4 billion, uh, in January 2021. And I think as recently, it's, it's shrunk about 90 plus percent um, from that pandemic high to about $0.4 billion. Um, they had brought in an ex-Target uh, exec who had a really... Um, kind of strong chops when it came to private label, which is something Target obviously has done historically well. They really cut back on those kind of like good old 20% off coupons that I think we all kind of have in our car and our cupboard somewhere uh, from Bed Bath & Beyond. It's kind of like the word of mouth I kind of always view from Bed Bath & Beyond. It's like that stickiness factor. Those those coupons like always brought you back into the store. It seems like always like a person you knew or you had them. Um, And so I, I think it's a store that we don't really ever touch on. Obviously, they kind of sell a little bit of everything. We talk so much about food beverage brands, um, you know, which don't usually pop up a ton in Bed Bath & Beyond unless you're kind of in that, you know, aisle of misfit things uh, right before checkout there. Um, but you don't usually see a retailer shrink this much in market cap uh, this quickly. Uh, obviously, the pandemic kind of sweltered a lot of people's numbers, but this is a historically really strong retailer. So I was really surprised to kind of see uh, you know, consumers kind of uh, peel back from shopping at this location. Um, CJ, kind of let's start with you. What were your kind of thoughts on this retailer and, and where do you think they're kind of going in the future with uh, the recent news that that CEO is going to be stepping down? Yeah, I mean, I, I when you brought this to my attention, I was actually kind of looking at the at the stock chart. It's, it's had a really interesting behavior because it, it hasn't been a straight down thing since like the general high is around November of 21. Like it, you know, dipped deeply in the March and then spiked up. You know, it makes me wonder if, if they did some kind of stock buyback or, or, or something happened to make that that spike back up to the, you know, all the way up to the high 20s. Um, so I, I don't know a whole lot about it other than just about every retailer, um, you know, that, that was based around like improvements in the home, especially slightly cheaper cosmetic improvements in the home like bed bath and beyond kind of 
owns, you know, did amazing during COVID as all that demand got pulled forward. Um, and then it seems like it's a combination of, of, you know, poor leadership, you know, poor, poor inventory management and everything else. But it also looks like they brought in a new chief accounting officer. There might, there might be some, like, you know, some rottenness inside that I'll, I'll dig in and find out. But other than that, I think it's just kind of falling prey to the same thing that every retailers that are over indexed to home improvement are. Yeah, um, it was interesting to kind of say that this decline wasn't just kind of some rapid fall off, off the hill, but just kind of some up and down gradually kind of getting us here to this point. Um, Taylor, how about you? Kind of what were your thoughts when you saw this? Are you a big bed, bath and beyond shopper? And what do you think kind of is in the future uh, for this retailer? Yeah, so we live fortunately, unfortunately next to one. Um, we always <laughs> try to hawk like coupons, like from people that like leave their free bed, bath, beyond stuff, but it never works successfully, you know, in the out in the hallway, we're like, are they going to notice if we take theirs? Um, no, I look, I don't have much that. I think one is just, it's kind of just brutal corporate America. Like I always see these things are like, the numbers are down out goes the guy. He's like, well, it's good while it lasts. I mean, that's the nature of the beast, right? I, I know that is how it is. It's just, I don't know. It's, you see like numbers go down and then these people are fired or, or stepped down uh, shortly thereafter. And so it is, I mean, that's what they're, you know, brought in to do is to help make sure that either they keep the business, you know, afloat or they help increase sales. And so if, if, you know, numbers are going down substantially, that does fall on that role, not solo, but that's usually the person who has to go. Right. Um, in terms of the, you know, slump due to like home and, you know, people not investing as much in like home <clears throat> decor and home, whatever interior design anymore. I don't know. I guess there's kind of a part of me that like, I know that obviously during COVID people were adamant about, you know, revamping or re, re, recharging the mantra of their living rooms or whatever. But it's like, I don't know, like, I feel like perhaps there could be something around companies that get ahead of it and even realize that like, yes, COVID is bad right now. And obviously they are benefiting from people being at home and that's why their sales are going up. But like, thinking of like, obviously this is going to end, like what can they do to pivot really quickly as soon as they know that people are going to go back to offices or they're not going to be able to allocate as much time or money anymore into the home. I just think that maybe it would have been beneficial if they thought through like a really strong initiative to kind of keep the momentum going and not focus as much on just you're in your home and here's what to do. But, you know, as things evolve, we evolve, you know what I mean? Like as things are coming back, we're coming back. I don't know what that would look like, but that would be from a marketing perspective, something that I would have thought through is how to kind of think quick on my feet around that. Yeah, I, I think I would, uh, you know, peeling back on those coupons and, and kind of like the market behavior around like your consumer base, it seemed like a lot of the adopters of Bed Bath & Beyond were like rabid fans of it. So to lose them, um, which it seems like they're doing right now, um, is definitely kind of crippling as the company. Since that seemed kind of how they built their word of mouth campaigns. And, and for me, somebody who's not shopping there all the time, I mean, I was thinking about it when I was reading the article. I mean, I probably haven't stepped in there in like a couple of years. But before that, I mean, we were always going in just because we always had those coupons and we felt like it was burning a hole in our pocket and we had to get in. So it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. Obviously, the move with the new Target CEO, um, you know, didn't uh, work out well, but uh, we'll continue to kind of monitor the situation and bring it up as as we follow kind of what goes on with Bed Bath & Beyond in the future. Um, one of the topics that we talked about a few episodes ago uh, was the sad one of Honest Tea being discontinued. Um, it didn't take very long, uh, but Seth Goldman is kind of now back at it and just filed for a trademark application for just iced tea. Um, this actually sent me down a 
tizzy when I sent you guys this article because I was like, what is the difference between iced tea and iced tea? Because uh, I didn't see like a D in the name. And I was like, all right, I got to get to the bottom of this because I was like having a, like a mental breakdown of like, wait, what? It, where is wait. the D? I don't get it. Like this, this makes no sense to me. And I still like I'm not at the bottom of the rabbit hole yet, but I will definitely report back. Um, so I guess I don't I think they might be filing the trademark underneath the company that they already own, Eat the Change, which is a company he runs with um, celebrity chef Spike Mendelson. Um, it's, it's basically going to be on his T 2.0 from everything I've read. Um, they've come out and say, hey, it's going to be pretty much the same uh, kind of recipe, uh, same flavor profiles. Unifying K he are already signed up um, to bring on this, this product extension. Obviously, it's a seasoned uh, beverage vet, you know, distribution and new retailers is not going to be an issue for them. Um, what I was kind of actually surprised with was the name that they went with. I mean, just is like pretty um, entrenched with just egg um, and like kind of that, that plant-based product they use just for a lot of their different products. So I'll be interested to see how that kind of works out from an IP standpoint, uh, even though they say that there's going to be no issues with the trademark filing. Um, but yeah, I, I think the, the things that stuck out to me was like the one, the name, uh, two, the fact that they're already kind of not retaliating, but they've got this plan B to go to market with a new product right away. Um, and yeah, I was just, I was just interested to see that this was, this is kind of what they're going to market with right after that decision by Coke, um, you know, just a few weeks ago. CJ, what were kind of your initial thoughts? Well, I mean, it's, it's funny because I, I was working on a brand back when I was at Gallo called Just Whiskey. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and like the exact same thing, you, you, you combine like social awareness with, like clean ingredients. The, the, the reason we never launched is it kind of came to the conclusion like, hey, every whiskey is just whiskey. Like there's not like as many negative add-ons that come in the BevAlk world that that um, that would make it, you know, work as like a proper juxtaposition to its peers. So that got abandoned, but I, I got a tickle out of it. Um, I even used like a ton of like sans serif font that like is... Uh, is kind of trustworthy and like you know the the, the level of kerning that's that's on like just like identical. I was so it makes me wonder if Leo Burnett worked on this. Um, but besides that, like I mean, if he's going for a redo and he's comfortable enough and like doesn't have to sell and have it like I mean I, I've I've been hearing rumblings from like Whole Foods buyers and and some of the other natural channels that like hey now we've got a giant hole in our set and we're gonna fill it with something like I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't go out and just get a lot of the space that that honesty was in enough to make like a perfectly acceptable business and if he's not trying to you know sell it on immediately um, then it, it might it might work out just fine in in kind of pun intended just fine in that kind of new new thing that he's building with Spike Mendelson as far as like a little bit overall, like, like more oriented towards a miniature conglomerate than it is to build a single brand and sell it on. Um, so I think it might work out fine. Taylor, what were your kind of initial thoughts after seeing this and, and are you excited to see this brand kind of come to market here soon? I have the same question around the name. Like I also, yeah. I Where's mean, the I, D or yeah, <laughs> yeah, I just, yeah, I right. I kind of also had the same thought of like, is this like, is it like you know, snow cone ice with tea? I, I don't know. I just went my head also went in a few different directions. I wasn't really sure. I still am not sure where 
the Diaz. Um, the only other the only other thought that I had was like I just think I'm sorry to interrupt you more early. What does the rapper like? <laughs> right? I I was thinking also right him too. Like, do you incorporate him into it? Like, I so anyway, I'm not. I would like a D. Um, that aside, I like how fast this turnaround happened and you know it seemed like obviously all that news happened in real time which as we talked about last time I thought was really interesting um just how quickly he was able to to really kind of come out as a thought leader um you know and take control of the situation and own the narrative in a way that was very authentic to him in real time and as we talked about given my background in corporate affairs corporate comms like that shit takes forever and um even if you're your own you know you're founder of a company just kind of taking the time to do something as quick as he was able to, he was able to turn the round so quickly. Um, and I think this is just kind of another example of like how nimble this guy is. Um, you know, in reality, like not only was he able to turn around a really quick response that quite frankly, like took over the CPG, you know, Twitterverse and internet um, right when that happened. But I think being able to turn around this and get this out there and announce something new, a, a very notable initiative with another notable partner like Spike, um, I'm just really impressed. I mean, I don't know anything about the IC, you know, I'm a good old Snapple girl, uh, as to no one's surprise, I'm sure on this podcast. Um, but anyway, I just think this is another example, like I said last time of, of someone who's just quick on their feet and able to, to make the best of the situation, turn it around. And, uh, this is, you know, from a new product innovation perspective, him doing that. And I'm excited to see what, yeah, what's to come. Yeah. CJ, from an, an investment standpoint, like when, like, when you're evaluating kind of like, you know, there's, there's probably, uh, you know, I don't know how many I see, but there's a ton of ready to drink beverages that are looking to take over that shelf space that honest tea kind of gave up. Right. And, and a ton of emerging brands and, and new founders trying to get in when you, when you see kind of like a seasoned vet come back, right. And, and kind of like, who's already had a successful exit in the space and gotten raised. Um, like, are you, when you get those opportunities, are you just, are you jumping in right away? Cause you know that they're basically putting the same playbook together and putting into the same pipeline, or is it, you know, are you making the, the earlier bets on the on kind of more of emerging brands? I, I think that, I think that you'd have to ask yourself the question of like, Hey, what does the exit look like here? And, and, and what is he trying to build? And it might have a lot more to do with how it fits into his, his overall, um vision with what he's building with with spike mendelson so you have to flesh that out but in general if you can back a you know successful founder doing it again you know moving into a space that he's pretty comfortable working like it's hard not to do at least some allocation to this um i think that a lot of a lot of investors like to pretend that they're always trying to like skate where the puck is going and not where it's been but for the most part, it's a pattern recognition game and, and you're, you're, you're not going to, you know, lose a lot of sleep at night backing someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah, no, I, I, that makes sense. And, and uh, yeah, I think sometimes it can be frustrating for, for some of the smaller brands and the emerging brands that kind of see these stories, you know, uh, they're going to ramp up and be everywhere relatively quickly and they wonder why it's not happening to them. And, you know, it's just, it's kind of like the quote, like the first million is the hardest, right? It's like, once you have that first exit or, or that first opportunity, um, you know, the, the rest can really kind of come into place relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. 
Awesome. Well, we have, uh, we'll, we'll leave this segment. We have our, our title for this podcast is Cameron and, and Taylor look for the D. And so we'll, we'll title it, title this for the, <laughs> for the podcast episode here. And hopefully that will increase listens, uh, for this episode. Um, so let's or get us on. banned or whatever. <laughs> or, or, yes. Yeah, getting kicked out of the industry. Um, so let's move to, to food, uh, a food dive article I was reading, uh, this week, uh, Eclipse, which is a brand I've tried at Expo a few times really like the product i'm laughing because i'm looking at a product like the product image here and like every pint of ice cream product image is actually like two pints worth of ice cream in one pint and it's like overflowing always and it's like i never get that because it's like you're not getting that in one pint but i digress um so they raised a 40 million dollar uh series b uh, that they announced over the last week. You guys got a lot of rabbit holes this week, huh? Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, listen, I know. I'm coming off like, a long weekend. Is- I'm yeah, refreshed. Right. I've got, my brain is just working in real time. You know, it's, it is it is what it is. So so Eclipse raised a $40 million Series B. I'm sure this, they probably raised it a couple of months ago and they're just making the announcement right now. Um, I, th- I found it kind of funny because they said, you know, we're not, this raise isn't, you know, going to pigeonhole this as an ice cream brand, right? They called themselves a platform where they're going to basically be kind of a dairy platform creating basically any dairy product that they want. Uh, I think sometimes that can be kind of internal speak to do things like increase the valuation and get them further away from a CPG evaluation, which, which tends to be lower than, than traditional tech kind of valuations. Uh, but really like the product, um, don't, not so sure about the plant-based kind of ice cream space. I know it's, I think it's only like three to 5% of the total market. Uh, I actually know a really big player in the space that just pulled all of their plant-based ice cream uh, and basically relaunch it as grass-fed ice cream because of how small the market opportunity was. Uh, I think it's still really early days. Uh, there's some really good players in the space, obviously like Oatly and, and things like that. But uh, Taylor, why don't we start with you on this? Kind of what was your feeling when you read about the raise and, and kind of what's your feeling on the space in general? If people need money to invest in something, I can give them like a hundred brands that like need funding and beverage. I mean, this is, I don't know, like 40, $40 million for a plant-based milkshake company. Like, again, I'm not the right person for this. I can only listen to your commentary, YouTube around this. I know that Cam would try it. I don't know. I feel like that's so much money to go into something. Like you said that, like, to me, I don't see like the massive market for it, but like, Maybe they know something that I don't know. Um, I also think too, like you said, Cam, like I felt like even though I'm not as tapped into this as you guys are, like I do know of some competitors that have already made headway in the space more broadly. So my only feedback is like, I just, I was pretty taken aback by the, the amount of money that was put into this round. And I, I don't know, I guess there there is a market for it. And it's, I'm assuming it's going to continue to grow if, if there are that many people and a lot of the VCs I'm familiar with that have put money into this round. So I don't know. I, I'm going to watch it, but I'm not yeah. the consumer and a little bit surprised at, at how much is being put into this company, even in particular, let alone that, that space. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit on the last episode, like plant-based dairy is kind of the only place that's really picking up in terms of return customers. So I I guess I'm not too surprised that it goes into this versus, you know, we read so much about plant-based meat. Like we've shown that people are doing repeat purchases, especially for plant-based milk products. I think it's now seeing, hey, is that going to be sticky past just their milk purchasing and into other dairy-based products? I mean, there's some badass investors like in this round like forerunner and initialize are like some of the best um so obviously 
I don't know, Cameron, are, are you not getting a little bit of like a here we go again from Forerunner and Initialized being in? Like, that, that's exactly the same crew that took Beyond and Impossible to like, you know, insane heights and then and then let it drop from a, you know, like, the, like, like now, if they can run the same playbook where they can, they can basically push this all, you know, you know, push it really high and then and then use retail as exit liquidity, like, like all those IPOs did. Um, then it might work, but like I'm getting a little bit of a deja vu here thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess a little bit, but I mean, you can kind of speak a, a, a lot better than I can, but I mean, beyond, they've probably already kind of seen that that exit through and probably cash out to their LPs and everything from that investment, right? Like they're probably not still holding on to the stock. And that, that's my point is like, like it's, it's either they didn't take the lesson from beyond or impossible or the lesson is hey retail investors love the idea of these platform brands we can we can pump them up all the way through ipo and then use you know retail the, the average person you know and mutual funds as exit liquidity to get out of this who cares if it falls 70 percent from the top yeah no I, I i agree i think that that's kind of that, that's how i'm falling like i think that they they realize there's a clear pathway that they can have a big return for their LPs and their fund, and they're just going to rinse and repeat that playbook. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I honestly don't know. It's, so it's either, it's either insidious or, you know, not respecting what just happened in the past. So those, those are our choices. Yeah. I mean, are you seeing a, um, a lot of brands come to you in this space? Um, I mean, we, we, we don't, do a whole lot of stuff in the plant-based space. Like I, I, you know, I, I'd have to tr try the ice cream and see, but I mean, a $40 million, like I, I'm, I'm really curious to know, like, you, you know, when we talked about the big numbers with, um, with magic spoon and even circle, um, I'm always wondering if I'm pronouncing that, that, that water bottle thing correctly. I, like the, the, the actual letters make me want to pronounce it circle, but, <laughs> um, but regardless, um, they, fancy. Yeah, <laughs> They, they at least had like very, very serious revenue growth and profitability or approaching profitability, you know, whereas, I, you know, I, this one was just totally off my radar. Um, I like to think that that lessons have been learned and this thing's a little bit closer to profitability. But in the article, they're, they're right back to talking about a platform. Um, and we just haven't seen a platform work all that well. Yeah, like we, you know, the the Jenny CEO was was at uh, at Nosh, and I think he was probably the best speaker. And I think everybody can go see that on YouTube. But like, you know, it's like that's probably one of the better performing uh, CEOs and companies, like in the frozen ice cream set. And you know, there wasn't kind of any of the talk that you see like in this article, right? They're just executing around scoop shops. They're executing around amazing products, and they've spent somewhere between like 10 to 12 years building that brand slowly. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm always nervous about frozen and then you're doing a subset of frozen, you know, ice cream is probably the most trafficked area of frozen, which is great, but like pints overall are, are really down right now. Um, you know, we're looking at some of the syndicated data that's coming out. I mean, it's taking a massive hit post um, uh, post pandemic. Uh, now frozen novelty is like bars and things where people have a set amount of calories that they're eating, right? If I'm getting 150 calories in a chocolate, you know, fudgesicle or something like that, that's starting to pick up, especially with male purchasers, but pints are just like really, really getting hammered right now post pandemic. So it'll be interesting to see what um, kind of expansion they go into in other product sets. Um, cause that's definitely going to be necessary, I think for them to, you know, justify this round, but you know, 
hey, I think it's going to be awesome to see and, um, you know, more power to them if they can't execute on this kind of platform that can make anything that they want dairy free. Um, all right, so let's pivot to uh, a DTC darling kind of story. Um, Away, which everyone kind of knows is the, um, the uh, DTC luggage company, um, obviously kind of one of the best performing DTC companies out there. Um, they recently uh, announced that they're going to be expanding into outdoor gear. Uh, so think about duffel bags, backpacks, things for weekend trips, hiking, um, basically just a line uh, to accessorize like what you need outside of just that traditional roller bag that they have. One of the things that always struck me with Away is like, if the product's good, right? You're buying it maybe once, twice. <laughs> like my LTV is pretty capped on how many times I'm gonna be purchasing the product. So I was always waiting to see what they were gonna come out with next because it seems like everyone raves around the product. Um, so it only makes sense for them to go into kind of a new space. And I think you're gonna continue to see this with DTC brands like, do we go into retail for more growth or do we create more line extensions for more growth? How do we activate our community in a more efficient way? Um, Taylor, we'll start with you. Uh, do you own an away bag? What were your kind of thoughts on this new product initiative? Um, and do you think it will be successful for them? I do own products from the company. I like the company a lot. I know a few people in leadership roles in the company as well. Um, just generally I'm a fan of the brand and the overall like brand ethos. Yeah. I mean, when I saw this, I wasn't familiar with this until Kim, as always, you bring things, great things to our attention. Um, feels very fitting. I, I mean, I, I think as I think they did it in the right manner where it was like, you know, own something in particular and own it and entirely through and through and do it well and become known for something. And then over time, add to that portfolio with, kind of synergistic products that fit your target consumer. So to me, this feels very right. And uh, timing makes sense. I think people are right now going back into travel, as we know, like <laughs> crazier than ever when it comes to people, you know, traveling at, the, at this moment in time, but honestly, moving forward, I think as long as people aren't strapped down with another knock on wood pandemic, I think people will continue to want to travel and get out there. So yeah, I think through and through, they did it right. I think they owned the market, did it well. And now we're just kind of expanding on it with products that make sense for their target audience. And given kind of the moment in time too, when more people are traveling than ever before, I think it's a great, I don't have much else to add. I think it's a great idea. I probably will buy some. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good, it's also going to, I think I'll help introduce them to a lot of more new consumers, right? Who will eventually mm -hmm. buy the roller bags. I think like you're looking at products ranging from 150 to 250 here. So I think you're going to, you're really reducing the introductory cost to a way, which I think is going to really help um, introduce them to a lot of new customers. Um, CJ, kind of what were your thoughts? Well, yeah, I'll start by like, I have kind of a weird perspective on this because so many of my classmates went on to like work at Bain and McKinsey. And within that world, there's like very much like external brand signaling done by, by, by your carry on. Cause you, you live out of it for almost all the time. So like the, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing this wrong, the, the Ramawa versus the Tumi, like the, you know, those, the all aluminum suitcases that you, you see, you know, like on, only in, in business class and then, and then the Tumi. So that like the, those were like my world of like, okay, that's the suitcase you're supposed to like, I guess, aspire to, because this is what all the McKinsey people carry. Um, and then I think Away came in through and like, like basically created a category just underneath that where they're like, Hey, we want to, we want to build an actual enduring brand, but we want to, you know, get the, you know, the, the non, you know, Monday through Thursday travel everyday warrior. 
Um, and, and we just want to basically convince people that, no, you don't have to buy your shell suitcase at Costco. It's okay to pay a couple hundred bucks. And it worked. Um, I don't know that that opportunity necessarily exists in, in like um, what they're calling far. Cause like, I think it's a much more competitive category um, that, that has just about every price point already saturated. So do I think that they'll be able to get some of their consumers to, to shop this? Yes. Do I think that the insight of more and more millennial and Gen Z are doing more outdoor things, you know, you know the, the age old or the, the preference experiences over, um, you know, over, over locations sitting, sitting and looking at a beach, all true. I just think it's a significantly more developed category. Like they haven't like, they really did create a new way to think about carry-ons. Like as, like as silly as that phrase sounds to come out of my mouth, like a new way to think about carry-ons. They did it. They pulled it off and they made a ton of money doing it. I don't necessarily think there's a new way to think about duffels that, that, you know, one of REI or the North face or, or uh, Patagonia hasn't covered every price point in eventuality. So they're, they're going to be, they're going to be trying to become incremental to that category. And it's not as big an opportunity. Yeah, I think maybe what they're betting on too is that through the pandemic, maybe a lot of their customers who are already purchased in a way have kind of changed what they're looking for um, in the travel kind of excursions they're going for. I think you're seeing a huge increase in like RV rentals and camping and hiking and things like that. And, and a lot of local travel is kind of picking up, I think. So hopefully, I think they might just be banking on like a lot of incremental sales to their core audience. Uh, and maybe maybe not like the point I made earlier for new audience members, like they're just looking for kind of incremental sales on top of what they had and how do they engage those customers. But do you worry like from an investment standpoint, like, okay, if your product's good, I'm buying it once and I'm maybe not buying it again for 20 years, like something like a, like that, like a away suitcase. I mean, I, I think, you know, part of that's price point, right? Like, I mean, that definitely can work. It works in cars. Mattresses, and- yeah. Yeah, like the mattresses or some pianos, like like, and and typically, typically, like like when you have that kind of scenario, like if you if you just completely say, okay, I have a widget that I can only sell to someone, you know, once every five years at best, maybe ten years, then like all that really tells you is the widget you're selling better have a high nominal cost and a phenomenal gross margin, otherwise you won't win. So like, and and that's exactly what what OA did. Like they sold you know, multi-hundred dollar AOVs that that are you know, at their core plastic. So they're probably 80% gross margins or more, depending on what their supply chain worked on. And, and it's the same with these bags. You, know, you, you, sell a, you sell essentially a vinyl duffel bag for $190. You, you're probably pushing 85% gross margin. So that like they understand their business model. Um, and, th- and then they just have to go out and find consumers to fit it. Like, and so I, I, you know, they, they had the discipline to make it work before they didn't fall into the discounting trap. They didn't fall into the, well, we've got to get more, more, more volume. They knew that to make something that doesn't have a frequent purchase cycle work, you have to be high margin, high nominal dollars. And they're doing it again. I just don't think that it's as novel compared to the rest of the category as it was before. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I see that. Um, Awesome. So we have a few more minutes left. I want to pivot to the last kind of conversation. Um, something we've talked about a, a bunch, but you know, you, you both work with so many brands 
um, that I really wanted to kind of get your opinion on this. Uh, a recent article that I shared with you showed that TikTok's probably posed to do about $12 billion in ad revenue uh, this year, and they had just launched a new product to make it easier for ad agencies to really target segment audiences and really run their ad agency businesses off of TikTok. Um, that was kind of paired with brands are really starving for both TikTok talent and then people who can run their TikTok. Uh, I'm really tired of saying TikTok over and over again in this sentence, but it's uh, it's it just seems like it's critical for these brands. And the conversations that I have with brands, they're really just like, they're testing a lot of stuff. They're throwing a, thing, a lot of things against the wall. I think they're getting really frustrated by the brands that are doing it really well. Um, but I just wanted to kind of touch base with, with both of you and, and see, you know, what are you hearing from brands right now? How are they approaching the platform? How are they having success? You know, CJ, are you seeing it, um, you know, really kind of a pivotal part of your investment strategy to see kind of like what their uh, engagement is there and then tailor with the brands that you work with, um, you know, how are they using it and how are they benefiting from it? So, you know, Taylor, let's start with you. I know this is a topic we've talked about before, but yeah. it keeps coming up with a lot of brands. And I think the more information we can put out there, the better. Yeah. I mean, there's still on the traditional, like hard alk side. Um, so there's a few things. So everyone that I work with is still trying to figure out TikTok every day. Um, we have inroads. I personally have inroads with a lot of people that run partnerships for TikTok. And we kind of have this like recurring calendar invite to check in with her around, you know, legalities as to how brands both quite frankly on the hard alk and the cannabis side of things can begin kind of more formally, uh, leveraging the platform, right. Outside of like leveraging influencers, which there's a lot of gray space there. Um, so on the traditional, like hard alk and cannabis space, uh, every brand that I have been advising and probably will be advising, um, wants to know how to get on the platform in a legal way from an account perspective, not through influencers, but make their own accounts legally, uh, still not at the point where they can do that. So leveraging people that have, you know, 21 or over pages that fit the criteria in the demo that they're trying to target is kind of how some of these brands are doing it. But some of the brands that both CJ and I kind of overlap on in terms of brands that CJ has invested in, I advise on, I think we're all erring on the side of just using caution around that. Um, obviously they would go after big brands that are on the platform more so than, you know, small to mid-sized companies, but needless to say, I think there's still a lot of hesitation there. Um, and then, you know, where I am seeing some interesting play is in this non-ALK space, um, they can use the platform. So uh, I think, you know, going back, and so how do you leverage it? What I've seen is uh, a little bit more on the education side, which is the work that I do on this kind of, now you guys know that I'm very much in this non-ALK, low-ALK space, um, but they're, they're using it both to kind of talk about brands, but also like use notable bartenders to say, hey, we can do a lot in the non-alcoholic space. And here's what to know about the category. And so it's about education and also brand awareness. Um, but last point being, um, just in terms of people, creative agencies bring them on. I, I mean, look, I think it makes sense. I mean, like I've been tapped to come in big agencies and become like a spirit expert, right? So I don't really see it being much different if people need experts in certain categories and creators of content, why not try to house them in these agencies where they know a plethora of brands are going to want that service. And these people can work for these brands. It sounds like and create the content um, as part of their, you know, service offering. So I, I think it makes sense. Um, yeah. And I, I think for the creators, it's an interesting way to have, you know, stability, work for a bigger corporation, work for a handful of different companies under someone else's, you know, uh, guidance. So it depends. Some people may think that's for them. Some may not. They may want the liberty of doing their own thing, but I think some may like working kind of within these agency confines. 
So I don't know if that's helpful, but I have a few different thoughts on all things. Yeah, no, a, a ton of good points. If we if we weren't so up against it, I would I would let you keep let you keep going. But let's let's move to to CJ kind of for the final thoughts on this topic. Yeah, I mean for the for the stage that we invest in. I typically like, like I have an identical conversation over over the weekend where someone was like, "Hey, can you explain to me why company A is doing so well on TikTok? How could we do that?" And I was just like, "Honestly, I can't. Like, I can recognize that that one of the founders is preternaturally gifted at 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 this particular channel and at finding, you know, to Taylor's point." legal ways to build an audience that is significantly larger than what it follows the the core brand site. Um, but I, I can't, I can't explain to that. So like we're actually fair at, at early stages, quite anti-agency. Like yeah. if, if you're going to invest in a brand because you think it can be special in digital channels, that specialness better be located in the founders for our thesis. That, that, that doesn't mean that, you know, posts, you know, BCD rounds, that people can't find the right agency and the right voice to amplify that, the right agency to amplify that voice. But early on, I, I tend to I tend to be very very um, skeptical of an agency's ability to to, to amplify that voice, and it needs to be rooted in the founders. Um, I think the issue there too is the founders then don't really understand like what mistakes were made, so you don't really then know how to iterate and make it better. Like when we ran Facebook better, and yeah. LinkedIn ads, like two years ago, we did an agency. And now, hey, we're looking back to get in there. And like the other channels, which we tested ourselves, I don't necessarily know how we should test, tweak the copy and the content the way we used to, because we didn't run those. So yeah, I, I really agree with that point that it should be in-house as much as possible early on. I, I also there, think, oh, go ahead, CJ. There, 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 there are differences between table stakes and, and, and company strengths. I, like, you know, very, like, if if you could, I could just put a tape recording of myself in most board meetings and 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 not have to be there and, and just have the tape recording and say over and over again, "Hey, on your DNC stuff, it's a it's a cost center. You're losing money here. I realize that you have to do X amount, but let's let's cut here. Let's cut hard." Um, and and like like not everybody has to be amazing at DNC sales. Not everybody has to be amazing at TikTok. If you are, that is what defines your company and you're raising money at it. If you're not you can't automatically say, oh, this is an arms race. I must be good at it. Probably you're good at something else. And for the most part, making strengths better is a lot is a lot cheaper and more efficient than making weaknesses on par with strengths. Like, yeah, you got to do the table stakes, but you know, do what you're good at. For sure. Taylor, do you want to, I know, um, I want to get your thoughts. You're about to, you're about to crack in there for a second. No, I'm no, no. I mean, my only other point too, just building on CJ's whole point around agencies. I mean, I say the same thing. I think, you know, especially for brands that are coming to market or brand new to market, like they just don't have the ability to, I think, test and learn the way big companies can. They just can't. I mean, outside of, I agree with them outside of, um, you know, focusing on having the founders kind of do this in their own, own authentic voice. I think too, it's just financially speaking, it's just a lot of these companies just don't have the the ability to do something like that, where they spend six months on a TikTok program and they're like, oh, well, this didn't really work well. It's like, that's just not how it works. I think, like you said, Kim, everything needs to be iterative. And with TikTok, I do think it's important that the founders of these companies, especially if they continue to lead these brands, given that most people now under the age of like 35 were using this platform, I do think it's, it's crucial 
um, for them to just figure out how to navigate it. And, you know, even if they don't necessarily have a strong presence from a brand perspective, just learn the platform, see what works, like just see how things work. So that when, if on, at least as I'm saying on the hard alk and the cannabis side of things, when things do become more kosher and, and approve, you know, legally approved, whatever for brands to do stuff, they've been watching the space. They know what works. They know it doesn't, they know how to use the platform. And I agree that using them, um, would be the best way to go versus bringing in some agency where a you know they don't know what they're doing right like you said cam they need to learn themselves and b is i just don't think they have the financial resources to do a lot of these campaigns and just see what sticks that some of these bigger companies can do which i don't think is a bad thing in this case yeah no i agree with both of your points and i'm glad we kind of circled back on this topic because i know it's on, on top of mind for a lot of brands that's it for this week's episode uh thank you taylor and cj as always and we'll see everybody back next week